0: You are now listening to episode 21 of the certified Podcast. I'm your host Arturo, and I want to thank you once again for tuning in. Today, I have an interview with Eli Ayala from Revealed Apologetics. Uh, please follow him on Facebook and go follow his podcast as well. There's links in the description. Um, the full discussion will also be uploaded on YouTube. If you enjoy this ministry and would like to support, I ask you please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash saintsedified. And right there, you can be a monthly contributor or even just give a one-time donation. Anything helps, and it will be much appreciated. If you guys can't, keep it, then please keep us in prayer. That would also be appreciated. Well, I don't want to waste too much of your time. Enjoy. Well, thanks, Eli, for, for joining me on the saint certified podcast. Um, this is the first time we I actually use video to do a regular podcast, so it's going to be pretty interesting. But uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Eli, he's an apologist, uh, and uh, and really, he's, he's someone that's worked with guys like Matt Slick and others, and I'll let him introduce himself, but I was actually very uh, encouraged to, when I first saw a video of, of Eli, it was about like kids becoming atheists or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember the first thing I thought was like, this guy is no more, he's no older than 23 years old, you know, and there's no, there's no way he could have kids, that many kids and have that much experience. And, <laughs> and, it turns out, and, then, uh, and then I, then I had a, dis- I heard a discussion between him and Matt Slick and they were going back and forth on theology proper. And, and my mind was, I was loving it. I was soaking it all in. I loved how Eli was pressing in on, uh, against Matt and Matt was going back at him. And It was like watching a boxing match, you know. It was, it was so cool. And uh, so, um, so yeah, man. I, I I really had the the. I, this feels like a privilege to to be able to to uh, to do this discussion and interview with Eli. So, Eli, man, do you want to go ahead and uh, introduce yourself and, and what you do and all that to the audience?
1: Sure. Uh, my name is Elias Ayala. That's my full name. Uh, my friends call me Eli. I am thirty seven years old. I have three kids: uh, Autumn, Grace, Ayala, my my firstborn daughter, and I have. Um, a son who is three, his name is Ethan, um, and I have a, a six-month-old uh, who goes by the name of Calvin, uh, surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> um, and uh, my wife, uh, Brianne, we live here on Long Island, New York. Um, I am, as you said before, I'm a Christian apologist. Um, I started a ministry called Revealed Apologetics uh, to promote um, uh, presuppositional apologetics as a methodology and just uh, apologetics and theology in general. And um, I also uh, work, uh, work for the Historical Bible Society, uh, which is kind of like a traveling Bible museum. The guy that I work for actually has over a million dollars worth of biblical manuscripts that he brings oh, wow. to uh, churches and puts on display uh, for free. And he'll talk about the historical reliability of the Bible. So folks are interested there can look on historicalbiblesociety.org. And I also teach middle school, high school at a Christian private school. I teach all of the Bible classes and theology and apologetics uh, to the seniors before they're off to college. And um, I believe that is it.
0: Cool. Cool. Yeah, man. Obviously, you do a lot, man. And I don't know how you can manage all that. You know, in your schedule, it's crazy. But but it's uh, (laughs) well,
1: I I actually started do I started waking up. I know this might sound crazy, but it's not as crazy as it as it seems. I have to be at work. At eight o'clock, and I live maybe like uh, forty-five minutes away from from work or whatever. So I've actually been uh, beginning to wake up at four forty in the morning. Four forty in the morning. Four forty-five. Have my cup of coffee. The hardest part is rolling out of bed, but once I'm up, you know, I'm good, and I have that nice solid, you know, from five o'clock to like six forty-five of just reading and studying or listening. I'll go for a morning walk still while it's dark out, listening to podcasts, debates, and stuff like that. So I found doing that has helped me fit. Kind of like this block of time where I could have a continuous uninterrupted time of of reflection, prayer, reading the Bible, or whatever. So,
0: nice man.
1: Nice. We make we make it work. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I, I tried that. Actually, I was trying that this year, and
0: it's a struggle for me <laughs> because uh, I'm actually uh like a you know I I stay up late usually. You know, I can't I don't sleep very well at night. Um right. I live off like maybe three to four hours of sleep, and but the mornings nice. are rough for me, man. I, I I I'm still trying though, so hopefully I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No worries. Uh, okay, so. Just to kind of give everyone a, a heads up. Uh, the, the reason why uh, I want to interview Eli and have a discussion with them is because, um, so so normally what usually happens is that uh, when someone gets like, like an introduction to a a uh, I don't know like a, an, an advanced uh, doctrine or, or or teaching, it's usually like two experts uh, going at it, and, and, mm-hmm. and the two experts typically assume what the beginners might want to know. And, and a lot of times it still goes over our head, you know? So sure. the, this whole idea of Molinism, right? Uh, like I, I, I love listening to you and Tyler talk, man. It's, it's like, I learned so much, but then I have so many questions afterwards. I'm like, ah, oh, I wish it didn't end. And uh, so, so I, I wanna ask questions from a, a novice, like a beginner to, sure. I, I mean, I think, I think if you as an expert, I know you might deny that, but I, I think, <laughs> <Okay>. I think <laughs> you know, you used to be a Molinist and you know, and, sure. so I, I think it's gonna be kind of cool to kind of ask you some questions. And kind of go back and forth a little bit, and um, and just kind of reminding you that I'm, you know, I'm a beginner. You know, like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that smart, and I just want to soak it all in. You know, so <laughs> okay. Um. So so yeah, you know, uh, and everyone, please subscribe to his podcast. I've been learning so much from Eli. Um. And he had, he has interviews on there too. Um. And uh, and and he he even interviewed a a a, a, a well-known Molinist, uh, Tim Stratton. Mm. Uh, smart guy, man. That guy's too. I, I don't want to. I don't want to spar with him physically or mentally, because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, so yeah, man. You went from a Calvinist to Molinist, and then Molinist to Calvinist uh, at some point in your life, and and, and, and that, that's something that I want to really explore, you know. And and also to, um, you know, you're 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 Reformed, uh, you know. You, you hold to uh, the doctrines of grace and your covenantal, and and I want to ex- I want to explore how how that has helped you in your apologetic ministry, you know, and, Mm -hmm. um, and also too, man, I think one, I think something that, you know, already um, that's been shared over and over again, I think. And uh, even in the comments, I I read the comment section sometimes in your debates. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing that people actually say about you is that, you know, they respect you because for one, you're, you're clear, you're articulate, you could communicate truth. At the same time, you're, you, you you do it in a way that's gentle and respectful, you know, Mm -hmm. And um, and that's something I really wish I could see more Christian apologists take on. You know that Christian character. Um, so hopefully those things we can, we can cover today. You know, and sure. and, and I'm hoping that it's going to be a benefit to everyone. So. Yeah. All right, go right. cool, man. So all right, so let me go ahead and bring this up, man. Um, so so Molinism. Um, now, if if a uh, let's just say a new Christian, right? New Christian, born again Christian, did not grow up in church and uh, this Krishna happens to be in middle school, and they ask you, what's a Molinist? <laughs> how, would you, how would you answer that?
1: Yeah, I, I just want to preface with the reality that we need to be very careful um, that not all concepts are able to be boiled down in an eighth grade level. So there, there is going to have to be some laying down of some foundations for the person to understand certain concepts. So for example, yeah. if I were to mention the word omniscience, the idea that God knows all things, well, to a person who just became a Christian, they might not know what that word means. So there's going to have to be some laying down of like a foundation to talk a little bit about those things. So um, Molinism is a complicated uh, uh, perspective, but I think there are easy ways to define it. And so if I were to just explain what Molinism is, Molinism is a view of God's omniscience, a view of God's knowledge Okay. And it was developed by a counter reformer, Louis de Molina, who I think he was born 1535 to 1600. And he uh, was considered a counter reformer. He was part of the society of the Jesuits. And so again, if I was talking to an eighth grader, um, I would have to give a context. What is a counter reformation, the reformation. So there's going to have to be a foundation there, but basically, um, Louis de Molina, um, uh, Came up with a uh, a view of God's omniscience to counter the very strong sense of uh, divine sovereignty that was being promoted by the by the Protestant reformers, and so Molina didn't just derive this view out of just a bare like interpreting of the scriptures. He developed it in response to the reformers. Um, that doesn't make it wrong or anything like that. It just just to give you the context out of which this particular view um, uh, kind of grew out of. And basically, Molina um, understood God's knowledge in three moments. There are three moments of God's knowledge um, that we could that that Molins understand as God's natural knowledge, God's middle knowledge, and God's free knowledge. Now, I'm an eighth. I'm talking to an eighth grader now. Basically, basically, God's natural knowledge could be understood um, as His could knowledge. God knows anything that could happen. He knows all possibilities. God's middle knowledge would be God's would knowledge. God knows everything that would happen if certain things were to obtain. And then God's free knowledge is God's will knowledge. It's his knowledge of what will in fact happen.
0: Okay. That's that's a nice breakdown, bro. I really appreciate
1: that. And that that was uh, basically, I had trouble understanding Molinism until I read, um, maybe I have it here on my shelf somewhere. Uh, Maybe I, oh, wait, up here. Yeah. Um, This uh, book by Dr. Kenneth Keithley, who's a professor at um, Southeastern Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, uh, North Carolina, Um, this book, Salvation and Sovereignty, A Molinist Approach, uh, he broke it down in those categories in a way that was very easy for me to understand. It was helpful to me when I was beginning to look into uh, Molinism. So we can understand God's knowledge in terms of this could knowledge, would knowledge, and will knowledge. Now, This is where the eighth grader is going to have to, I'm going to have to meet with him a couple of times to talk a little bit about what is known as God's divine decree. It is that act of God's will in which he actualizes his eternal plans and they begin to unfold in space and time. And so you have this interesting idea within Molinism that you have his natural knowledge, everything that could happen, his middle knowledge, everything that would happen, And in between the middle knowledge and his knowledge of what will in fact happen is the divine decree. Mm -hmm. So when God chooses out of the worlds that he desires and decrees, then everything in that world will in fact occur and cannot Mm -hmm. fail to occur. Right. And so uh, Molinism is that system that understands God's knowledge in those three senses and a key aspect of Molinism is this idea of middle knowledge. And uh, this idea of middle knowledge and natural knowledge and free knowledge and all, theologians have understood God's um, knowledge in different categories, but I think Molina was unique in that he understood uh, that perhaps God has this, this other aspect of his knowledge, and perhaps he uses that aspect of his knowledge into creating a world that he desires. And by setting up that system, you are able, God has middle knowledge and decrees a world based upon his middle knowledge. What you preserve in that system is libertarian free will, which is a very important issue within Molinism since the the Molinist is seeking to answer a theological puzzle that has vexed theologians throughout history. And that is how does one reconcile this idea of a meticulous divine sovereignty and control that God has And uh, this idea of human freedom and responsibility. The Bible teaches both. And so how do we fit that together? And this has been kind of the puzzle. A lot of people are like, well, how do we put this together? Maybe it's this way. Maybe it's that way. Maybe we can't know. The Molinist um, makes the attempt of providing an explanation as to how that might work. And many Molinist uh, philosophers, and and now it's becoming much more popular, uh, many people in general are seeing that perhaps this is a helpful way of framing or understanding, rather, that um, important theological question. And one more point, the reason why the particular Molinistic answer is interesting to people is A, it seems as though it answers the question, Mm -hmm. and B, it has a very interesting use in other areas, like yeah. apologetics, if you see someone like right. William Lane Craig, uh, he uses Molinism in various ways, but but understands that if Molinism is true, it has a very it has very important implications in apologetics and helping answering certain questions that are brought up within that context. So, again, uh, Mr. Eighth Grader, maybe you can come back and we can talk a little more about <laughs> the details of that, um, and then uh, that that's how I would understand it. I'm sure there are Molinists who um, might you know explain it more simply or whatever but that's how i would say it and i would define my terms along the way with the eighth grade or so
0: yeah no no i appreciate him actually no the, the way how that you know the way how you defined it the would could will mm-hmm. that, that that helps me personally honestly it does it sure it, yeah because uh yeah, yeah i mean um i was talking to a buddy uh who a very smart guy and uh and, he, and he's been you know he's been listening to your videos tyler and, uh, and a few others and um and, and he, he was breaking it down to me as well, you know, just kind of how you were doing like in a like, little like timeline almost. And sure, I think that's sure. very, very helpful, bro. Uh, so yeah, I mean, hopefully people do understand at least the basics or the surface level of Molinism.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, the first time I heard of a Calvinistic Molinist was, I think, uh, was, I, actually might've been from you, uh, okay I'm, I'm trying to think i'm trying to think if, that, if that's actually a thing or it could have been on a facebook forum or something you know where, where someone sure. said that uh, that a calvinist could hold to molinism um, how long how long were you a molinist like or, or if you don't mind actually can you explain the transition from like calvinist to molinism what all happened sure. what you
1: well what i consider a fun time in when everyone is in bed or or doing something else and i have time for myself my idea of fun is studying theology so I was studying theology. I was looking into different topics, and uh, among my favorite topics to, to cover are apologetics. I'm very interested in apologetic methodology. I love like the whole creation debates and things like that, and I love the Calvinism debates. And so, I was very uh, much interested and um, informed on the issues relating to Calvinism and how people explain different issues and questions. And as I was um, searching online, I came across a name. Uh, a, 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 young, a young guy by the name of Max Andrews, who was at the time a Molinist and actually a, a quite up and coming Molinist. Very, very bright guy. In some circles, some people uh, called him the, the young William Lane Craig. He's very, very bright. Um, and he had an entire section in his website where it had like a directory of Molinist material. And when I was looking through it to study the view and understand, um, what I began to see, people kept referencing this book salvation and sovereignty. Okay. And, uh, and, and when I began to look up the book, what I found was what, what people found so helpful about this book is it's not just a book on Molinism, but it actually sets Molinism side by side with Calvinism. So you're not, you're not getting bogged down by just merely reading about Molinism. Perhaps there's kind of this overly philosophical jargon and symbolic logic, and you're like, what's going on over here? This book lays it out rather simply and it shows that in a very important way, Molinism doesn't have to be that different than Calvinism. And that resonated with me because as many Calvinists um, struggle with answering the question of God's uh, sovereignty and human freedom, I wanted to find perhaps there was an answer to this. And people seem to sit, talk a lot about this book. And so I read it, I ordered it and I read it. And, um, and it became very attractive to me because um, it was set up with the um, the reworking of the uh, the five points of Calvinism. Instead of looking at the five points of Calvinism in terms of tulip T U L I P, we have total depravity, un- unconditional election, limited atonement. It set up the acronym roses, which some Reformed people actually uh, use as well. Instead of total yeah. depravity, it's uh, I think it's like radical depravity or oh, something yeah, like yeah. that, yeah, right, right. yeah, or overcoming grace or something like that. Yeah. And it reset it reset the acronym as roses and modified some of the points. So as to um, show you where Molinism can agree with Calvinism with some slight variation, especially within the the idea of irresistible grace, right. and um, and what drew me to this book specifically, biblically, one thing that I didn't struggle with was the idea of monergism. I believed salvation mm-hmm. was monergistic, mm-hmm. so that was a non negotiable. And Molinism, as presented in this book. Um, it presented a model of Molinism in which you could still affirm monergism in the salvation process. And so that became very attractive to me. I was like, wait a minute. So this answers mm-hmm. a really key a philosophical question. And I don't have to forsake some of these other points that I find very biblical. And so I began to resonate very much with that position. And Uh, Little by little, eventually, through some uh, great turmoil, I remember my wife can tell you, we went away on a family trip, and my family was on the beach, and I was back in our cabin, and I was just like thinking about these things, everyone's like, where is Eli, you know, and I was in my room having this like midlife crisis, you know, um, and eventually I became a Molinist um, in, in the sense that was reflected in this book, so this was a more Calvinistic sort of Molinism. And, and to try out the view, I started debating with my Calvinist friends and was, uh, because I'm also a, um, did I lose you? Uh,
0: yeah, I can hear you. I just, yeah, I don't see you but anymore.
1: Someone's trying, my dad's trying to call me and my dad's always calling me. I just, okay. I'll, I'll call him right <laughs> um, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. Um, yes, I, I'm a pretty good debater. And so that I, hurt. when I take a position, I do, you know, I go cutthroat with it. So I took my Molinist position. And I began to uh, debate my Calvinist friends. Yeah, but what about this? But this is how you answer it. No, you're misunderstanding mm-hmm. Molinism. And, and, yeah. and in, in a very real regard, it was true. A lot of the criticisms against Molinism are mis- based on misunderstandings. Right. Now, again, right now, I'm not a Molinist. But one mm-hmm. of my biggest qualms with Calvinism is the same qualms that Calvinists have with Arminians. Mm-hmm. It's that Arminian, Arminians tend to really misrepresent what the Calvinist is actually teaching. Right. And so you have that barrier of communication. Well, in like fashion, I think a lot of Calvinists misunderstand what Molinism is teaching. And so you have that barrier. Um, So um, I did a very good job debating the issue. And as I was, you know, as I perceived myself kind of winning these discussions, giving a Molinistic answer, uh, I became more and more convinced of of the position. Now, that being said, Molinists are going to listen to this episode. I understand and people should understand that Molinism is a view of God's omniscience. It is not necessarily tied to a specific what we would call soteriological view, so one's view of salvation. You could make application there, and that was where I found the point of interest here. Because this this book presented Um, uh, Molinism within the context of soteriology and that was really where I was asking my questions right I didn't care if someone had libertarian free will to choose what socks they were wearing I wanted to know where does libertarian free will fit into the whole process of salvation and things like that so this is why this book um, I I resonated with this book um, a lot and so that's how I became a Molinist and I was a Molinist for probably almost a year I did have some back and forths with uh, Tim Stratton over at Free Thinking Ministries we kind of had some text conversations in which um, I was getting such a good grasp on Molinism that I was making points where Tim was like, hey, that was actually a really good point. You know? we were, and, and then he would clarify something to me and we'd actually be learning from one another. And so um, that coupled with many of the Molinists that I have known have been such gentlemen and respectful people. while on the other hand many calvinists that i that i knew were just complete jerks (laughs) and this is this is kind of like um uh, kind of the caricature well calvinists are just you know they call everyone heretic and and you know what sadly that's very true in a lot of quarters within the church and so um the temptation was to go full throttle molinism not because i thought it was probably true but it would have been easy to kind of fall on that side because Molinists just seemed to be so much yeah. more nicer than those Calvinists. Yeah, you know? yeah, right, right. Um, but I tried my best to not be jaded by that because I know regardless if someone's a jerk or not, um, the reality is, is the position true? And right. not yeah. all Calvinists are, are jerks. I know, yeah. Even you know, even Leighton Flowers would admit that, right? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so right. Um, yeah. So I began to really resonate with that view and um, I, I held to it for uh, about a year. Okay. And um, and then it was l- later on where I began to kind of doubt the Molinistic scheme, not not the Molinistic, the Molinistic scheme broadly, but rather the Molinistic scheme as I came to it here, as it applied okay. to salvation. I began to doubt that what Doctor Keithley was suggesting was a Monergistic view that can be married to Molinism. I did not later come to agree that what he presents here as Monergism was in fact Monergism. I oh, started asking questions. He came up with this view um, called the ambulatory model okay. in which, uh, in which um, the whole salvation process is likened to someone who wakes up and finds themselves um, on a stretcher being taken to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Now, they're being, they're being brought to the point of salvation, if you will. And okay. so if you don't do anything, you just stay on the stretcher, then you're brought successfully to the hospital and hence saved. And so look, salvation is monergistic. The only thing you can do is decide to get off the stretcher. And so if you get off the stretcher, then it's your fault. You're responsible because you failed to stay on the stretcher. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so they would say, look, responsibility when you sin, that's your responsibility. And if you don't do anything, then you're saved. That's monergism. See how it works together. And for a while, that that did make a lot of sense to me. Um, until I began to think that the analogy began to break down for me in the sense that does the Bible liken the salvation process to a person who wakes up on a stretcher? Right, right. Right. I mean, I began to read scripture after scripture. Wait a minute. We're not just waking up and finding ourselves on a stretcher. We're at enmity with God. Right, we right. hate God. Once we yeah. find out we're being taken to the hospital by, you know, by yeah. God, you know, I want to get off, you know? Yeah. and so. And so um, you know, verses where, where it speaks of the natural man unable to do that, which is pleasing to God. I, I asked mm-hmm. myself, is, is the decision to stay on the stretcher prior to regeneration, is the decision to stay on the stretcher a good, mm-hmm. a, a, you know, passive decision? Well, it is. Yeah. And so I saw myself as, well, prior to regeneration, I'm an enemy of God. I don't want to be on the stretcher. And so why does one person uh, decide to stay on the stretcher and another person doesn't decide to stay on the stretcher. Yeah. You get into all those other issues. I know that there could be more played out there, yeah, but it yeah. was there that the monergistic structure of at least how Keith presented it began to fall apart for me and then began to, for me to kind of back up and look at everything all over again. Now, again, I understand molinists are going to say well molinism is not a soteriological view right. and keith lee's view of molinism is not the only view i understand that but this is part of my journey this was what my mind was going through and caused me to kind of reevaluate something yeah yeah
0: good man good you know you know and like you said earlier about um Molinus being gentlemen and, and kind and all that um, so you know i stepped away from the youtube apologetic game for a while you know like i remember like eight years ago i was really heavy in it you know and there was a lot of Calvinistic apologists online,
1: mm.
0: and uh, and I remember there were excellent videos, you know. And then I kind of stepped away from that for a while. Um, and recently, last year, I I got back into it and uh, just trying to launch my YouTube channel as well. And I came across some new, uh, well, I'm new. I mean, like two years old, maybe three. Um, some 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 YouTube channels, right? They're apologetic YouTube channels. And at times they sounded like, I thought they were presuppositionalists, you know, like yeah. Eric Hernandez, for example, you know, I heard him, I was like, that guy's a presupp, I know he is, you know. And, right. and then one time I heard them talking about Reformed theology, right? And they all disagreed. There was like five of them and they all disagreed with it, but they were so kind about it. Like, oh, we still love our brothers, you know, our Calvinistic brothers, you know, right. they offer a lot of good stuff. I, I listened to Tim Keller, I listened to them, and, and they started like giving us props, you know. I do appreciate the Molinists in that, in that respect, you know, that they, they, they are respectful. Uh, the ones I came across online, excellent. Even, uh, even Dr. Craig, for example, when he's, when he was talking about how he used Calvinist as, as an example with Hitchens, you remember that? When, yeah, when yeah. he debated Hitchens and he actually used Calvinists. <laughs> right. Well, in a later interview on a podcast I was listening to, he was like, no, I uh, the reason why I, I use Calvinist because I actually believe that my Calvinist brothers could take, could take that you know and and, but really it wasn't like that at all everyone was you know angry with them you know and
1: listen listen you got to be insane to get angry at dr craig i I know i'm a big i'm a big fan of james white uh yeah, yeah but but i i don't think that the um I think James White gets far too, uh, upset over Dr. Craig that he probably, but he probably should stay upset with the theology. If you disagree with the theology, that's fine. We understand that. Um, but you can't fault Dr. I mean, he has been nothing but a, a gentleman, a professional, um, you know, and we disagree. I mean, it's no, it's no, I mean, when I say it's no biggie, I'm not saying it's not important. Obviously the disagreement is important. It has implications for a wide range of things. But that right, doesn't right. mean we have to be disagreeable in our disagreements, and I think right, that's right. very, very important, especially for building bridges of communication. Even if I was speaking to a heretic, mm-hmm. what? Where does it get you to scream heretic in the person's <laughs> face? I mean, wouldn't you want to have a little friendly debate to hash out the issues? You might as well yeah. show respect to the person so that you could actually have that interaction and get and make some meaningful uh, segue in the interaction. So that's I don't right. see why. Um, a lot of people uh, in, in their false piety just want to jump into these theological debates, which kind of sometimes show a, a, an idolatry towards the intellect. They just want to, mm. in the name of trying to honor the gospel, they debate in such a way, really, that the undergirding um, motivation is just to show, listen, I'm, I'm smarter than you. Yeah. I'm more correct than you. And, you know, it's, it's, it's possible to defend the faith unbiblically.
0: Right. right, oh, yeah, yeah.
1: And I think, and, and you know what, all sides can be guilty of that. I, w- I would say that if you defend the faith using an unbiblical methodology, you're defending the faith unbiblically. But you could right. also defend the faith unbiblically by being a jerk when you're trying to defend the faith, you
0: know? Yeah, right, 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 exactly, exactly. Amen, bro, yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, speaking of James White, uh, I-, I heard your discussion with him um, mm-hmm. on Molinism, you know, and, uh, and it, it, you know, so James White, I mean, uh, he's – again, he's another guy that's just really blessed my life. You know, I hit my Christian walk, you know, he, Same. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember uh, when I, so I, I was, I became a Christian in high school in sophomore year, summer before sophomore year. And, uh, and I just remember, I, I was also at a Pentecostal church. So, you know, I, I think you, you also grew up in the Pentecostal church, right? That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and so the discipleship wasn't a priority for them at the time, you know, so I went like almost a year and a half, just kind of, living off karm.org and <laughs> and and then later on i came across james white you know and sure. and, uh, and man he just i mean i can't i can't thank god enough for that man you know and uh, in that discussion you talked about how he was in a debate uh wearing like a green jacket or something and and uh so it, with
1: leighton flowers
0: Le- oh, was, it, was that was that the one it was
1: it was the roman nine romans nine debate with leighton flowers
0: oh okay okay so he was yeah and i guess somewhere in there in that debate he asked a question about hermeneutics right
1: yeah, I mean, if I remember correctly, uh, James White asked Dr. Flowers that: um, Are you using the same exegetical method of interpretation when you defend your position as you would defend the deity of Christ, justification by faith alone? Right? Are you using the same methodology of, of exegesis when you're defending your particular understanding here, Romans nine? And Dr. Flowers responded with, "No." Now, now. In defense of Dr. Flowers, Dr. Flowers has, uh, uh, you know, let me know uh, personally through private message, and and he probably said said such on his podcast that there's a broader context as to why he answered no, and that there's an explanation as to why he didn't use exactly the same methodology, um, you know, and that and that's fine, that's fair. I mean, you know, um, um, but I think the principle uh, was helpful to me in that when I was asking myself when I'm defending Molinism am i defending molinism in the same way i would def- that i defended the deity of christ or you know justification by faith alone or the trinity and i had to, i had to be honest with myself no i wasn't i mm. felt like i had to jump outside the text a little bit and kind of impose certain categories that i don't think are derived from the text. Now, of course, if a Molinist is going to listen to this, they're going to disagree with me and mm-hmm. they're going to say, well, what about this? And Calvinists right. do that. Listen, we, we all do it to some extent. No yeah. one, I'm not denying that. It just seems to me that when I put Cal, uh, Calvinism and Molinism side by side, as I've been exposed to both, it seems as though um, Calvinism is very much reliant upon the exegesis of the text. Even right. when I wasn't a Calvinist and I wasn't a Molinist, even when was like a Pentecostal, you know, yeah. Arminian, right. I, I, that still resonated with me. Um, it seemed that though they were exegeting the scripture, whereas some other views, when they tried to show their view was correct, it didn't seem that there was a consistency in how, in how they did it. Oh. And that's, I mean, and granted, I mean, people who disagree with me are going to say, well... Maybe you should read this guy or maybe you should, you know, uh, listen, Calvinists are very, very big into exegesis. And I I have a friend who is a president of a seminary. Um, He's over at um, Trinity Radio, Braxton Hunter, um, who is he's a classical apologist and people should really check out his stuff. Um, Even as a pre-supper, I have learned so much from my classical brother. you, You actually
0: interviewed him, right? I actually, I interviewed
1: him and, and we've yeah. developed a friendship uh, yeah. over the phone. I've never met him in person, but we have spoken sometimes for hours. He's helped me prep for some debates by role-playing wow. and stuff. So he's nice. been very, very helpful. And um, I remember uh, when we were talking about Calvinism and his seminary, he says, well, we teach from, uh, from systematic theologies that are written by Calvinists. And I'm like, oh, really? And he goes, yeah, it's the Calvinists write all the books. <laughs> they, write, they write all the systematic theologies." <laughs> now again that doesn't mean calvinism is true it, it just for me it seems as though a lot of these Cal- the calvinist tradition is very much reliant upon a firm consistent exegesis of the text and a systematizing of the theological points from the text within a, a system a systematic and i i find that to be helpful and i resonate with that because i do have a genuine desire that whatever i believe i want it to be derived out of the soil of scripture now i understand People, well, Calvinism is not derived. It's, well, then that's, that's the debate, isn't it? Right, that's, right, right. What we're all, that's what we're all discussing. For me, I find that it is more so than, than Molinism. Now, in defense of the Molinist, um, if I could defend the Molinist, and this is where I think a lot of Calvinists fall short, is that Calvinists tend to critique Molinism by suggesting that it is merely a philosophical perspective imposed upon scripture. And I want to caution Calvinists for taking that route because I don't think Molinism is merely a philosophical system. But rather, it is a philosophical system that attempts to derive uh, certain principles from Scripture. It doesn't mean they do it successfully, necessarily. But right, there right. is a desire to take principles which they are convinced are in Scripture and then develop a systematic philosophical outlook as to how we can make sense out of God's knowledge and then they can apply it to different areas. So we can't say that it's just merely a philosophy. Listen, everyone's trying to make sense out of the biblical data. I think the reason why Calvinists tend to look at Molinism as merely a philosophy is because of how the public has been exposed to Molinism. Most people have been exposed to Molinism through the work of William Lane Craig and Alvin Plantinga. Alvin Plantinga is a prominent Molinist. And so um, their work is based upon the philosophical writings of Molina and, of course, with their specific variations. Right. And so the biblical defenses of Molinism that have been written by Luis de Molina have been largely untranslated. Mm. Untrans- there, is an entire, there is entire sections in Molina's work where he tries to defend this biblically. Now, granted, wow. whether he does that successfully is that yeah. that's the debate also. But we can't just say it's just merely a philosophy. They are trying to grapple with the text, except the medium through which we learn or are exposed to Molinism is from this philosophical side. And, of course, with William Lee Craig applying it to apologetics, which is very relevant to the Christian today. And and, and people are trying to see, well, how can I you know, use apologetics to answer this question and things? Dr. Craig is doing a wonderful job popularizing it but from that more philosophical side. Right, right. And so when people look at these Molinists using these complex philosophical arguments, they it, the, the natural knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, well this is just philosophy. When, yeah, right. in fact, it is philosophy, but it's not a philosophy completely independent from the text. They are trying to... Um, Look at it from a textual perspective, but not in the popular way that it's presented. In the popular way that it's presented, it's occupying that very philosophical aspect. Yeah. And so we want to we want to be we want to be careful how we criticize it, or how we criticize certain versions of it. Molinism is not monolithic. Um, for example, right, yeah. Calvinists often critique Molinism as though it's like a salvation system, mm-hmm. and it's it's not right. Um, Molinism is a very flexible view. All you need is the proposition that God has middle knowledge and some suggest another necessary proposition that men have libertarian freedom. What you do with those pillars, how you right. apply them, you could apply them in a wide range of ways. You could apply it more in a more Armin, Arminian sort of way. Like Dr. Craig veers more towards like a Wesleyan view I and mean, then he right. applies it in a way that's consistent with that. And you could apply Molinism in a more Calvinistic way. Now, whether Molinism is is in fact consistent with what we understand as Calvinism, that's another debate, but there is flexibility there. And I think a lot of Calvinist critics of Molinism tend to criticize an application of Molinism as opposed to Molinism proper. And so we want to be careful. If you want to take down Molinism, if in fact it is possible to take down Molinism, Mm -hmm. you have to deal with the essential features of the view, not its various applications necessarily. Okay. Okay that makes sense like, but by the by the way i don't claim to be able to do that yeah. <laughs> uh, i think i still think this is a very live debate i yeah. and when i say and that's for me maybe there i mean tyler vella is a much better right. uh oh, much man, better he's... criticizer of molinism than i am so it's just it might just be i'm not a molinist and i'm not convinced of molinism but i'm not convinced that i'm in a position to thoroughly refute it right, um, right. i'm just coming at it from the perspective of if I'm really honest with myself, I don't think this is really what is coming out of the text of scripture. And for me, that's a, that's a big deal. You so um, I'm not claiming to be able to destroy it, you know, with one fell swoop with my vast theological yeah. <laughs> and philosophical <laughs> right. knowledge or anything like that. So.
0: Cool, man. Yeah. No, so, early, so yeah, well, whenever we attack the applications of it, when example be like for example, um, I don't know, like say like, and, and, and by no means am I thinking of Tyler Vela when I say this, cause I know he's made this argument before. But I, he his mind is like, I, I I think he has like a condition where his brain is too big for his skull, right? <laughs> or or, or I, I don't know, I don't know. I, I saw I saw I saw on Facebook. I can't tell if it was a joke or what. But I saw that anyway. He's too smart. Okay. is what I'm trying to say. So I, I'm not I'm not thinking about him. Uh, but um, like when we say that, op, uh, that Molinism is open theism. Have you heard that before? How Molinism leads yeah. to open theism? Like, like, yeah. is, that, is, is, that an, is that an example of like attacking the application and not the uh, the actual, uh, I forgot how you called it, uh, like the foundations, I guess, of Molinism. It, 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 is, is, that, is that an example of kind of like what not to do? I, I'm,
1: um, I'm not sure. I, again, okay. I have to listen to, uh, again, Tyler's um, critique to show that it's basically open. It leads to open theism. He says that it, it entails open theism. And it's oh, an that. issue, and it was an interesting critique that I want to look and listen to the conversation okay. 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 a little more. Um, but it really depends on what, who, what, what is considered the bare essentials of Molinism. I've, I've learned that the foundations of Molinism is that God has middle knowledge and there's libertarian freedom. Other right, people right. have said, no, libertarian freedom is not a necessary component. It really, at its bare bones essentials, just deals with God's knowledge. Really? And so oh. some people say the foundation is does he have middle knowledge? And then other uh, people say the foundation is God has middle knowledge and there's libertarian freedom. So it depends uh, who you ask. Okay, um, okay. And there's a debate to be had there. Does God yeah. have that sort of uh, that sort of knowledge? And um, uh, that's, that's a question and that's a different, yeah. it's a difficult fill uh, ph- very philosophically in the weeds sort of debate. And so it can right, be difficult right. to navigate those waters. Yeah. But at the same time, we're not dealing with a simple question. I, I think, Um, in our disagreements, we need to be much more gracious towards one another. And I don't mean that in a superficial, let's all hold hands and be nice to each other and not care about the differences. But I think we need to be very patient with one another because this topic is very complicated. The terminology is very nuanced. And there is sometimes equivocation between different groups as as we're explaining and and unfolding the perspective out. I think that we need to really do a better job at listening to what the other person is saying. Because in reality, in many cases, these sorts of debates, you'll find that there's a lot more in common than there are differences. Now, granted, those differences might be very important, but it's mm-hmm. helpful to know where we do agree, so that would help the lines of communication to further the conversation.
0: Right. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. No. No. That's great, man. That's great. Um, I, I, I do want to get into uh, critiquing Molinism um, again. I, I can't critique it. I don't know much about it, but but I do want I, I do want to pick your brain a little bit more on. Um, on, on, on why you're not a Molinist and then uh, then we can get into the whole idea of uh, being reformed Calvinistic and mm-hmm. presuppositionalist you know when, when you were a Molinist um did you hold were you still holding to the, to the five points of Calvinism still or were, were, were you still kind of unsure about maybe irresistible grace or something or
1: yeah I think irresistible grace was a was a big one um, irresistible grace was, uh, one of those things, one of the points of the acronym that in this book, Kenneth Keithley, uh, he thought that we had to re, we had to rework. So we couldn't, we couldn't take it in the, um, in the, uh, Calvinistic sense and be consistent at that point. At least as I, as I understood it. Now there are some people who are arguing now that, um, Molinism is in fact consistent with a five point Calvinism. And that's an, that's an area that I, I have not studied in great depth. I know um, someone like Dr. Kirk McGregor uh, from McPherson college, um, brilliant Molinist, uh, probably uh, the best Molinist that, that I've learned from has been Dr. Kirk McGregor. Kirk McGregor. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure Tim Stratton has uh, equal, if not greater respect for Dr. McGregor. The guy is, is quite brilliant. And I think he's a very good um, defender of the Molinist position. Okay. um but whether it is in fact consistent with five-point calvinism it's not if you ask tyler vella <laughs> <Yeah>, right, right. <laughs> he, he he doesn't think so and and i'm inclined to agree with him however um, at this point in my knowledge base i don't think i'm in a position to say with confidence that i that i'm sure that it's not consistent in any way i don't know all of the necessary connections and there are some points of ambiguity that, that I'd have to tease out a little more through my own study. Um, so I don't think necessarily it's automatically, no, it's not consistent. I would be something I'd have to, you know, like my discussion with Tyler, I, that's something I have to listen to a couple of times to make sure right. I'm understanding what he's saying to see the necessary connection. So,
0: Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. Well, it makes me feel better that you have to listen to your own interviews more than once because- Oh, I, I, I listen uh, to all my all my uh, yeah.
1: podcasts. I listen to over and over again. I, ha-
0: I mean, I'm the same way, man. I'm sorry. I, I have to, I, you know, you, you probably get like at least a hundred of your downloads from me alone. So, <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, especially so. that that conversation I had with Chris Bolt on presuppositional apologetics. That was one of my favorite discussions I've had. A lot of those questions that I asked him were based upon pe- questions that people have asked me in my really good mm. kind of back and forth conversation. So that one, I felt. Was really helpful, and obviously that's not related to Molinism, but yeah, um, well, yeah. yeah. In other words, all that to say, I do listen, I do re-listen to some of my episodes. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it makes me feel a little better then. So, because <laughs> I, I can't get, I can't get it the first time, bro. It's a lot. So, but but yeah. but, speak, but speaking of that though, I mean like, because you know, again, it could be my ignorance, and mm-hmm. and uh, and it, you know, I'm okay with that because I still want to learn. But um, I have a hard time even thinking how libertarian free will is compatible with, uh, with total depravity, for example, you know, like, mm, mm. um, I, again, you know, I, I've heard, i for heard libertarian free will being defined as, um, a contrary choice, you know, uh, mm. where, you, where you, any choice you make, you can make the, the opposite of that, you know, mm, um, mm. I've heard it defined like that before. Um, I've heard it, uh, defined, I, I know Trim shine has a, he has a definition and he even uses like atheistic, um, or, uh, secular definitions of libertarian free will. But, uh, but but when it comes down to it, I still have trouble like connecting the two. How can someone who holds to total depravity, right? And, uh, and, you know, and then also hold to libertarian free will and Molinism. Can you
1: unpack that for me a little bit? Uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult because it depends on which Type of Molinism you're holding to, and there are different areas that are related to that. But um, first, if people don't know what total depravity is, total depravity is a view that flows out of uh, the Christian concept of original sin. Okay, Okay. original sin doesn't mean the first sin that was ever committed, right? (laughs) Right, Um, Rather, it refers to the results Mm -hmm. of the first sin, namely that all of Adam's progeny uh, or descendants are born with the stain or inclination of sins. So we're born with a sin nature. Some people would summarize it as something like uh, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Right. We are positioned in Adam. And so we are, we are sinners by, by nature. Hmm. And so man's natural inclination is geared toward sin. Now, so you have this idea of total depravity, this idea that flows out of original sin, namely, that we are touched by sin in every aspect of our being, you know, our minds, our wills, whatever. And so because of that, what is entailed by total depravity is, uh, what is called total inability. Mm. Okay. And total inability, uh, is wrapped up in the concept that, um, given our fallen nature, we are unable to do that, which is, which is spiritually good. We cannot do that, which is pleasing to God. And that's, Wrapped up in various um, scriptures, you know, you see Romans eight seven, uh, Romans three ten through twelve, and various other places uh, that we cannot do that which is pleasing to God. Okay, um, the in order to do that which is pleasing to God, we need to be uh, born of the Spirit, given a uh, you know, taking out the heart of stone and given the heart of flesh and things like that. So, um, when we're talking about libertarian freedom, you have to be very careful because. There are some people who make a differentiation between libertarian freedom as it pertains to salvation issues and libertarian freedom as it pertains to say everyday non-moral actions like choosing red socks over right. blue socks. Yeah. And so it really is going to depend who you ask in regards to whether they see those things fit together how they how they work it out, okay? Yeah. The real issue is not seeing not asking the question are they consistent? I think the thing for me is asking is it biblical? to apply that sort of freedom to the area of salvation you see what i'm saying Um, i'm I'm actually okay with exploring with someone well maybe we have libertarian freedom in some other sense now i'm not sure if that is necessarily connected to the whole salvation issue i mean that's another area that i'd be willing to kind of explore with someone but really what's important to me is the freedom in regards to salvation because i think the bible does clearly speak about uh, inability and things like that. You know, for example, you know, I had a discussion with Leighton Flowers on Soteriology 101 and, um, that's available on my podcast as well. The recording of that, if people want to listen to it. Um, and I have a, I have a disagreement with, with Dr. Flowers, um, over what the unregenerate man is able to do. Right. Um, he suggests that, uh, the unbeliever is able to recognize his own brokenness. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I don't believe that, given the fallenness of man, man is not able to recognize it in the sense that would lead him to repentance, independent of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, and again, if, if Dr. Flowers listened to this, because he subscribes to the podcast, so I mean, oh, maybe nice. he'll listen to this. <laughs> um, uh, if he does listen to it, he might want to make some qualifications there. But um, we, we disagree over what the natural man can do, and so if you're going to posit some form of libertarian freedom within the salvation process, and that kind of is tied into what you think the natural man can do independent of regeneration. However you work that out, then I think there's going to be a clear inconsistency since I think the Bible addresses specifically the nature of freedom in regards to one's ability to do that, which is pleasing to God or lack of ability to do that, which is pleasing to God. If that makes sense.
0: No, yeah. It makes sense, man. Yeah. And and, and really quick, man. So I thought I had my, I thought I had all my notes here. I don't though. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you, can you, cause you explained de depravity very well. Can you explain you know, what, what most, how do they define libertarian free will usually? Because I, I, mm-hmm. think that's, I, think, I, think, I think you hit something earlier, you know, it really depends how, what they mean by that, you know, if it just means like choice, you know, being able to choose between red and blue socks, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. if there's um, nothing outside ourselves that influences our, our choice or, or keeps us from making mm-hmm. certain choices, you know? Yeah. Uh, do, do you mind just explaining what, what they mean by libertarian free will?
1: Well, um, first, getting back to total depravity, Molinists, there are Molinists who affirm total depravity. Right. Um, and so, for example, in this book, uh, Salvation and Sovereignty, he affirms total depravity. Um, but again, there are some other issues that you now have to consider because he does right. tweak a certain understanding. So you, there's a whole system that, that this assumes. But if you would take the concept of libertarianism um, and think of it in, term, uh, in terms of ethically and, and metaphysically, okay. libertarianism is the view that, Human beings sometimes uh, can will more than one possibility, okay? So a person who, who freely makes a particular choice could have chosen differently, even if nothing about the past prior to the moment of choice had been different. Okay. Does, that, does that make sense? There, and there are different shades of libertarian uh, free will. For example, you have, uh, even within the context of determinism, you have hard determinists and soft determinists. You have hard libertarianists and soft libertarian. When I was a Molinist, I held to a soft libertarian view, okay? Which is sometimes understood as the, we we'll use the word concurrence, okay? Which asserts that the, um, the moral agent has the power To choose in a libertarian sense but the limits of that ability are decided by his character okay and in in other words uh because this can be confusing because it sounds a lot like the calvinist view of compatibilism right that Mm. that we choose things that are consistent with our character with our nature but on on soft libertarianism uh they think that a person's choice uh determines the set of choices available. So there are multiple actions that are consistent with the person's nature that they are libertarily free to choose between. Okay. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. In yeah, other yeah. words, on, on the Calvinist view, you, the man chooses that which is consistent with his nature, but the soft libertarian view says that there are multiple things that are consistent with his nature in which he is libertarianly free to choose between
0: yeah yeah okay. I get
1: it. yeah okay all right and so that would be the key and I, and I, if i wasn't a calvinist and i was a molinist i would probably affirm some version of that because okay. i think that 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 can somewhat somewhat be defended um through various scriptural texts and, and some concepts of so certain lines of argumentation i think can um support that so so when i keep mentioning this book if i was a molinist i probably would be a molinist more in line with keith lee Okay. Because he, re- uh, he seems in this book seems to resonate more with those Calvinistic leanings, which I, which, you know, which touches on areas that I'm convinced of, um, right, you know, okay. some, some Calvinists, I'm sorry, some non-Calvinists have a big problem with say like limited atonement. I don't, I think that limited atonement is eminently biblical. And it was one of the reasons why I couldn't mm-hmm. adopt certain versions of, you know, Molinists who set up their system in such a way where they had a particular view of how right. the atonement works. And how, so, so I'm, I'm a, a um, firm believer in limited atonement irresistible grace i think is a much more difficult concept um but i think it's biblical and when you look at scripture systematically i think it is the correct view and it's logically connected to some of those other points within um within calvinistic thought right okay yeah yeah and i think an, an important thing too is when we're trying to reconcile freedom with god's meticulous sovereignty um i i take I, I tend to lean towards kind of a soft determinism kind of a compatibilistic view as to how to understand all that but in reality um if you look at the uh a lot of the reformed literature throughout history there is an easy admission that the bible doesn't explain metaphysically how that all works there are calvinists who will adopt some sort of model as to how that all works together but yeah. that's not a necessary component of being a calvinist i mean one option for a Calvinist is to suggest, yes, the Bible teaches God is completely sovereign uh, in the sense that that we believe is Calvinist, and man is sufficiently free and morally responsible. How that works, I'm not obligated to present a model. It just happens to be that some Calvinists have presented a model. Molinists present a model. But if right. I'm convinced that the scripture doesn't speak of it, then I'm, I'm fine with um not putting forth a specific model. Deuteronomy 29, 29 has been such right. a helpful scripture that the secret things belong to the Lord. If God yeah. hasn't revealed it, I could speculate and there's an appropriate yeah. there's an appropriate context in which we could speculate. But I'm not I don't not necessitated to adopt one of those views that locks right. me into a category if I'm not convinced that that i that there's a sufficient explanation within the literature that I have to adopt.
0: You know right, right, exactly. No exactly man. Yeah and, and that, that, that that's actually a hard hard passage to even believe in sometimes for a Calvinist, you know, uh, like, <laughs> like we want to know everything, you know, we want to know everything higher how everything works. Right. And, and what really for, for a lot of Christians who are into theology and, and philosophy, you know, it, it's a difficult thing to apply. So I, I do appreciate mm-hmm. you saying that, man. It's
1: a good reminder. And, and everybody, by the way, every theological position has some element of mystery. Molinism right. has an element of mystery. If you read Keith Lee's book. He points out where the mystery is. He just thinks, that where the Molinist puts the mystery is a better place than where the Calvinist puts the mystery. I just happen Mm. to disagree. I just, I think that where he puts the mystery, I think the Bible is clear on. And when we where we put the mystery, the Bible doesn't explain. So it (laughs) it seems appropriate to put the mystery from from my, from my perspective. That's how I understand it.
0: Right. Right. Definitely, man. Definitely. Okay, cool. So, all right. Now um, you touched a little bit about uh, in your discussion with James White on, just the hermeneutics, right? Being being mm-hmm. consistent in how you interpret passages, and you explained how Liam Flowers even um, how even he even explained himself to you personally on what he meant. Let's say someone who's a Calvinist and a Monist watches this video, right? What passage in Scripture would you show them uh, on, on, on 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 them being inconsistent?
1: For example, when uh, when you take a systematic approach of the Bible in defending the Trinity, okay, right. Am I using that same systematic approach deriving from the text and being consistent in the way I apply that interpretive methodology? Am I being consistent when I'm arguing for, you know, position X, and in this case, Molinism, you see? So it's basically the basic tools of exegesis and hermeneutics. Are you being consistent when you defend the basic doctrines that all orthodox Christians believe in Mm -hmm. when you're defending Molinism and, And when you get into the weeds, I don't find that there is a consistency. Now, that being said, we need to make a distinction between proof texting a position right, right. Okay. versus actually deriving the position from the soil and lifeblood of the text itself. You okay. can proof text Molinism. There are proof texts where you can appeal to a text no. here and a text there. And, then that, and that's why there's a debate, because there are verses taken in isolation or clusters of certain verses you could construe where, yeah, I can see how that makes sense. But when you consistently approach scripture in a systematic way and you consistently employ the the methodology of interpretation and things like that, then you're going to see better. You're going to be in a better position to see where the truth of the text is coming out versus what we may be importing in the text that's not necessarily there. And so, um, again, I'm not saying that all Molinists do that. Um, in my experience, it seems that that is the case for me in my own experience. Um, but that's why I have ongoing discussions with Molinists. I don't, I don't have Molinists on just because I just want to talk about my, I'm actually interested in the topic and I'm open to, here's the thing as a Calvinist, I'm not a hardcore rabid sort of Calvinist, um, that it's like, well, Calvinism has to be true and that's it. I'm a Calvinist because I'm convinced biblically. But if I'm going to hold to the Semper Reformanda concept of the Reformation always reforming, then that's going to have to involve my willingness to reform my views if it has been demonstrated that my views are unbiblical. And as a Calvinist, to be consistent with those reformed principles, I have to be willing to do that. And I can't be willing to do that if I'm not listening to what people are saying. It just so happens that I'm convinced that they're not correct, that the Calvinist position is, is more strongly supported um scripturally and that you can derive calvinistic interpretations through a consistent exegesis of the text that's my position other people yeah. disagree but that's the nature of theology we and the brother you know brothers in the faith we talk about these things and we sharpen one another and uh, i think that that's how it goes you know so so but, but even as
0: christians we want to definitely we want to be honest with ourselves have integrity with interpreting the text you know and um and and i really do appreciate what you said too man um you know, even putting your Calvinism on the line. Hey, if the Bible disproves Calvinism, <laughs> you know, if it's not, if, if Calvin, if Calvinism isn't biblical, then we have to abandon it and hold to what's biblical.
1: Listen, if Leighton Flowers, <laughs> if Leighton Flowers is correct right. on his criticisms of Calvinism and its implications and its unbiblical nature, which I completely disagree with him, yeah. but if he was correct, we would have to be willing to say. The word of God right. takes precedent over my my pet theology. And so we need to be willing to reform. Now, I don't think he's correct, and right, I right. strongly disagree with him on, on his criticisms and things like that. But I mean, in principle, I have to be willing to change if if he accurately right. demonstrates that his position is true, or or if not his position being true, but my position being wrong, then right. we'd have to be right. we have to be open to that, right? Yeah, we can't exactly. just we, Calvinism should be a theology derived from scripture. It should not be a theological idol that we're married to because of all of the, the great Christian thinkers that we're obsessed with. And we read, Oh, Jonathan Edwards and John. Cal-. It's like, we got to be very careful. Sure. Uh, because they were human beings. And so they, you know, they weren't perfect and their exegesis, you know, are, may, we're convinced that they're correct in many key areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we need to sometimes be able to reflect on our own position and to check, um, you know, to check ourselves against scripture. And if right. and if what we believe is confirmed by scripture, all the more power to us. And then we go forward in that and we defend that. But we yeah. can't run away from difficulties and even difficult passages. There are, there are texts that don't seem to, on the surface, support a Calvinistic understanding. Right, right. Don't cry about it and say, well, you know, they're attacking us. No, yeah. answer the question. If there's right. a difficult passage, that's the Bible. It's the yeah. word of God. It's our standard. Try to uh, give an interpretation that is consistent with, you know, with the entire system that we use, if there's a a, um, kind of um, a hole in our armor and that there's no way for us to kind of understand that passage in a way that makes us consistent with with our position, then perhaps we need to reevaluate some areas. We shouldn't be afraid uh, of that. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, you know? It it doesn't disprove Christianity, but it can disprove our particular understanding of these um, issues. So got to be willing to look at those.
0: Yeah, sure. All right, man. So, okay. So typically in your interviews with Molinists, that so, uh, so far the, the ones that I've heard so far, okay. Mm-hmm. It's usually you asking the questions and then they kind of explain, but, um, like rarely do I hear you like, you know, yeah. go back at them, you know? So, so I kind of want to give you an opportunity a little bit. If, if, yeah. if, if you had, if you had a, a, you know, a couple arguments, uh, against the Molinist brother, or sister, um, I, I, I don't know if you want to attack the libertarian free will or the the, the middle knowledge. I mean, I'm not sure where you'll go, but mm-hmm. do, do do you have like uh, arguments that you typically like to use? That
1: well, there are there are really two things that I like to focus on, and and. And it's because of my simple understanding. I know you think I'm probably a genius, but I'm not. You are. I do, the, the, the reason why <laughs> I interview them is um, largely because I, I want to know how they answer the questions. It's not yeah. merely just to kind of like jump on it and to show it, it's wrong or whatever. Right. I want to I hear what they're saying and, and think about it and chew on it for a little bit. Um, but- in, in my disagreements with Molinists that I actually do interact with, um, which is not as much as people might think. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of it is just information gathering and trying to think about the system. But um, I always want to bring it, the issue back to the scriptures where in the scriptures, does it teach that God has the sort of middle knowledge that you're suggesting? So for example, if we were to understand the, um, Molinism, in terms of how it's understood, in God having three logical moments his natural knowledge, his knowledge of everything that could happen, his middle knowledge, everything that would happen, his divine decree, and then his free knowledge, everything that will happen. Um, The only way you can get this idea of libertarian freedom or this idea that God has middle knowledge from scripture, you have to show that scripturally speaking, God's knowledge of counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. Exist logically prior to his mm. divine decree. Mm. How would you prove that scripturally? Mm. Because Molinism is trying to answer a question that the Bible's not asking. You see mm. what I'm saying? You, as the in, as the theologian, as the Christian, you're trying to love the Lord your God with all your mind and fit these puzzle pieces together. But the Bible doesn't address the logical moments of God's knowledge. Mm. So, in order for you to have libertarian freedom. God's knowledge of counterfactuals of creaturely freedom must be located logically prior to his divine decree. So if that's if if that's what middle knowledge is and it's connected to libertarian freedom, if you're going to argue biblically, how would you argue biblically for a position that is not addressed in scripture? And and many Molinists will admit, yeah, it's not it's not taught in scripture. Dr. Craig says that, yeah, it's not taught in scripture explicitly but it doesn't contradict any doctrine of scripture and it's so fruitful when you assume that it's true that we are well within our rights to adopt it until shown otherwise that you know that it and i think that i i'm not sure i would think that's a wise position um because then this becomes for a lot of people not everyone it becomes kind of this overarching view that kind of dictates how they interpret the scriptures you see what i'm saying and so i think it becomes problematic at at that point um and so we need to be very careful uh we want to bring any opponent whether it's an opponent who's a brother in christ or opponent who is who is a you know holds to a heretical view or a non-christian if we're going to argue what the bible teaches we need to talk about what the bible teaches if you have some other model that is perhaps derived from some principles we want to we want to see are those principles in scripture to be understood in the way that you're understanding them such that it would justify the creation of this particular philosophical explanation. We'd have to explore those sorts of things. Molinists believe they are consistent. Calvinists, many Calvinists believe they're not consistent and that's where the debate is, is going to be. Um, so you have to be very careful. A lot of the popularizers of Molinism, as I said before, come at it from that philosophical bent. And so I've mm. talked to Molinists who actually lack the capacity to argue for it biblically.
0: Oh, There's wow. always,
1: in yeah. other words, they'll, they'll have proof text here and there, but it's more of, of critically analyzing, well, but if, if this says this, and this has to imply that, and if you deny this, then this follows, you know, well, well, let's stick with the text then. Let's try to stick with the text. Now, granted, there are Molinists who try to argue biblically, and there, as the Calvinist who wants to hold firm to the word of God— we right. need to meet the Molinists there. As brothers, that's where we want to be.
0: Yes.
1: So um, the way I would come at Molinism is to ask for its biblical foundations. Don't proof text for me. Show mm-hmm. me a consistent exegetical path from the text to the conclusions that you are mm-hmm. deriving. And uh, through that, at least for me, if a Molinist wanted to convert me to Molinism, that's how you would do it. You'd have to take my hand as a mm-hmm. brother in Christ and walk me through the text. Right. And I, in my in my experience, I have not seen that done to my satisfaction. And of course, there are other people who disagree and have you know have been converted and said, "Hey, this is a view that I think is biblical." And you know what? If that's your position, great. As long as you're adopting Molinism because you're convinced the Bible teaches it, not merely because of it, its apologetical usefulness. That that's another issue. Mm. A lot of people mm. are open that's to right. Molinism because of its usefulness and apologetics but that shouldn't yes. be the basis as to why you adopt the position right. sometimes listen there are things that we don't debate over in as orthodox christians that we know are clear in scripture we don't reject those things because they're difficult to defend mm-hmm. you see what i'm saying yeah. we we embrace them because this is what the bible teaches and so this is what i have to defend you cannot adopt views because it makes it easier to do apologetics. And so, uh, sure, I would say as a Calvinist, yeah, it's a little more difficult to, to answer certain questions than if you were to hold to a libertarian free will position. But the issue is truth. It's not pragmatism. And I think that's a very right, important right. Um, a very important thing to keep in mind.
0: Yes. yeah, That's what I was thinking, too. I was thinking that we can't, we can't really uh, appeal to what works. You Know right. uh, it, 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 just because it works well doesn't mean it's the it's truth, right? So, yeah, no, no, right. I, that, that's good, man. I, I, I really love that, man. You actually, what you're saying is that okay, uh, your argument is basically let, let's go, let's go to the text and exegete the passages. That, that, that's that's a really uh, it's encouraging for me, honestly, man, because <laughs> for me, it's it's not, I, I can't keep up with these philosophical discussions, you know, like, well, but one on one
1: by the way, it's not just helpful for you, it's helpful for a lot of Molinists that I've spoken with in private. When I've spoken with some Molinists in private, and I encourage them like, hey, make sure you're reading the scriptures. I've actually had, I won't mention his name, but a a Molinist who's kind of a very sharp guy, kind of up and coming. And um, he expressed to me that he sometimes felt spiritually dry.
0: Mm.
1: Um, Because you're bogged down with all this philosophical, you know, reading that you almost get lost in in the philosophy of it instead of yeah. Really, just relying on the the scriptures. Now, granted, that's not every Molinist. I understand, um, but in my experience studying Molinism, I found myself getting lost in mm. the philosophy. Um, yet, when I studied the Reformed literature, um, right, not, right. that's not to say that there's no philosophical Reformed literature. But when right, I right. studied the when I study these issues from the Reformed perspective, I was always in whether someone agrees with the interpretation or not. I was always engaged with the text. Right, and that is what really comforted me because i really am convinced that the bible should be the guiding principle yes and so that i resonate more with that route rather than logically reflecting on this concept that concept and over here and how this all fits together that's important mm-hmm. but it's the soil of the text that i want to derive sure. my views from that that's yes. where my commitments are
0: i mean it's happened to reform guys too where we get so deep into um theology textbooks sure. and we, we start we just stop reading the bible you know we just yeah. kind of although we can get a lot of bible in these textbooks like you said um, but th- there's something about just same time aside to look at scripture read scripture and meditate on it you know and and, and pray you know
1: sure yeah yeah, man,
0: yeah I, I really appreciate that man so so thanks for that so um did you have any other arguments you want to share or or because or, I, I do want to ask you about the, the problem of evil but uh but before that sure. is there is is there any other arguments that that you typically go to uh, when
1: talking to a Molinist? Yeah, I, again, when I'm talking to a fellow Christian, the majority of where I want to go is the Scriptures. Okay. that's that's yeah. our ultimate, that's our ultimate authority. Cool. So cool. that that would be the main place I would go, and what that debate would look like, it would go in a number of directions. Right. We have to. We so so there's not just one. You know, there's not this is one way this is how you refute Molinism. And it's really just (laughs) going to the text and approaching the test text systematically, seeing what all of the Bible has to say on these related issues and coming to conclusions that are based upon a consistent exegetical approach to the text of scripture.
0: Perfect. A lot of people like Molinism because it's really, it seems to provide an answer for the problem of evil, you know? Um, But uh, you know, there's some things that a Molinist will will say. I've heard, I've heard their answers before. Um, and and what they typically do, because I I think I think the, Cal, the the reformed Calvinistic answer to the problem of evil, it, it answers it logically and and probably not emotionally, right? But but also scripturally, you know, we have the scripture to back it up, and it's consistent. Sure. You know? So, um, do you think that the Molinist answer falls short? Um,
1: well, if you're talking about say something like the free will defense or something yeah, like that, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. If you assume the tenets of Molinism to be true. Uh, as far as I can tell, sure, yeah, you can provide an adequate answer to the problem of evil. But again, as we just said before, um, I'm, I'm concerned with whether it's true, not its practical usefulness. Right. You know, I could I answer any sort of objection if I assume certain set of presuppositions, right? You, right. you know what I'm saying? So um, I'm not sure where it falls apart, except for the fact that I'm not convinced it's true biblically. And so a Christian shouldn't argue in that. In that fashion, in, right. in when they're when they're defending the, uh, you know, when they're when they're preventing a theodicy or something like that. You, you know what right, I'm saying? Right. So, um, but when I say I think they shouldn't, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't. It, it, if you're convinced that that's the perspective, then then go for it. You, you know right, what I'm saying? Right. Uh, there, there's a Calvinist philosopher. His name is um, Guillaume Bignon. He's a French French dude. He wrote a very very um, awesome book. I think it's called. Uh, blaming God, excusing sinners. And he deals with mm. this whole issue of free will and sovereignty from a Calvinistic perspective. And he mm. provides a very powerful philosophical case uh, for mm. compatibilism and things like that. And um, he even suggests in some, in, when someone brings up the problem of evil, sometimes he'll use the free will defense. He mm. doesn't. Hold right. to it in the sense that yes, this is, but he grants perhaps it is true, and that is an option <laughs> right, for a right, Christian. Right. Um, and so there, there doesn't have to be this hard line of like absolutely not. Yeah, I think there's right. some there's some merit in using it in certain contexts. Okay. Um, so I, I don't think it necessarily falls apart in its mm-hmm. apologetic use. Where I think it falls apart, and I loose quotes, mm-hmm. right? If in if in fact it does fall apart, is if 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 it assumes unbiblical presuppositions as it relates to the nature of the will and God's sovereignty and how evil fits into all that, if it doesn't, if it's not backed by biblical presuppositions, who cares if it works in a discussion, you shouldn't be using it if there's a contradiction with our source material, which should be the scripture and the philosophy that is derived out of the the text of scripture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. man. Yeah. Cause you know, cause I guess when it comes down to it, you know, when, when I heard uh, James White debate uh, Silverman, right. Wait, Silverman, right? That's his last name? Yep. The atheist David stuff. David Silverman. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, and, and when he was answering that argument, he, he appealed to God's decree and sovereignty. And David was just left speechless. He was like, okay. So, and then he turned around on him. You know, he had no response to that at all, you know? Sure. And then you, you compare that with Frank Turek's, you know, response, you know what I mean? And so, again, like, just my opinion, you know, um, I, I think it, it becomes kind of difficult on a practical level, um, just evangelizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, answer a- answering that kind of question, you know, everyone asks that question, man. I mean, like I, when I go to the marketplace or the parks or even at the workplace. So if God is if God is so good, why does He allow this baby to have cancer? You know, and I, th- I, and, and I, I always appreciate the reform perspective on that. You know, mm-hmm. so
1: I think I think it's important to recognize too that you said that there are sometimes intellectually satisfying answers, but not emotional answers. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. The, yeah. like like the response to some. I don't think any. Response to the problem of evil provides an emotionally right. satisfying answer. Yeah, just not. But but we want to highlight the fact that in apologetics and evangelism, I want to get across to the person that the issue is not emotional; it's truth. Yes. You know, we we could sympathize with the unbeliever yeah. and say, you know what? That's a great that's a great point. I can see how this can be difficult. But really, as much as it's difficult for us to swallow, our emotions, which are warranted, we, we're warranted in feeling these emotions when we talk about evil. Our emotions don't get at truth. And so even if we're uncomfortable, you know, and I can be on the side of the unbeliever, I'm uncomfortable with it. Yes, that's right. But here's the case. If it's true, then we have hope. You can, can, you can kind of go from there. So um, I don't think we should be looking for answers to give to the unbeliever merely to satisfy them because in reality, you know, the gospel, even if it wasn't the problem of evil evil, and we're just bringing up the gospel, Well, the gospel, it, is offensive you know yeah. it's telling people you're a sinner and you're under god's judgment unless you repent like how do you say that in a way right, that's right. uh that's emotionally satisfying to someone's pride yes. our job is to promote truth and do so with as first peter three fifteen says with gentleness and respect right and that's it you you let the spirit do the work and people are going to do with that what they will your yes. job is not to make everyone happy. Your job is to <laughs> right. proclaim the truth uncompromisingly, yeah. but with gentleness and respect.
0: Yeah. Amen, bro. Amen. For sure. But, uh, but just really quickly uh, b- before because we're ready at almost towards the end here. And I really want to ask you this question. Um, so again, what I, what I love about you, bro, is that you could, you're, you're intellectually honest, you, mm-hmm. uh, which I think we shall have, you know, we should, we shall be honest with ourselves and, and really pray to God to, you know, enlighten, enlighten us when there's truth. You know, it's it's definitely uh, uh, something that we should do, but clearly you're convinced of Reformed theology. You're, 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 you're clearly convinced of the, the presuppositional approach, the method, and apologetics. Um, can you just quickly explain, because uh, I have a lot of people listening to this um, who probably don't even know what presupp is, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh, St. Edified isn't really an, an apologetic ministry. Sure. Um, it's just meant to kind of help Christians along the way. Um, but can you could just quickly explain why being reformed and precept um, is – well, for one, yeah, like, let's assume that they know it's biblical, so that way you won't have to explain everything, right? But, <laughs> okay. but, but why is it helpful for a Christian uh, to, to hold to these views in evangelism?
1: Well, well, again, there's the issue. I believe it's true. And so if it's hmm. true, we should hold to it. Um, right. But um, for practical purposes, I think right. not only is it true – but it's also, um, it also provides a powerful defense for, for, the, for biblical truths. So, for example, um, in apologetics, I think a presuppositional method is helpful because it, is a, it provides a powerful argument. And in my opinion, it's an irrefutable argument. So let me define my terms real quick. So presuppositional apologetics is an apologetic methodology that says that the Christian worldview, only the Christian worldview, provides the rational basis for, for intelligibility, for knowledge. So, um, so it is what we would call a top down approach to apologetics, not a bottom up approach. We do not argue up to God. Rather, Mm. we argue from God, we start with God as a starting point, and argue that if you do not start at this starting point, you couldn't make sense out of anything at all. Now, notice, notice if that is true. Notice how powerful that argument is. That's more powerful than a cosmological argument. Right. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Then you take the universe has a cause to a philosophical reflection of what it means to be a cause and you derive the classical <laughs> attributes of God. And then after all that, a God exists. Is it the Christian one? No, not yet. We need to go over here. To um, listen, the presuppositional approach takes Christianity as a package deal and mm. argues that unless you assume the world is the way the God of the Bible has revealed it, you couldn't make sense out of anything. And uh, and I mean anything, like even the very concept of evidence. When someone's giving me evidence, I say, without the Christian worldview, you couldn't even make sense out of the concept of evidence. And of course, we would go beyond making that claim and demonstrate that. Um, but the presuppositional approach is called presuppositional because it is very much concerned with our assumptions. We presuppose the truth of the Christian worldview and argue that without it, you couldn't prove anything else and um and in like fashion the unbeliever has presuppositions that he must assume in order to get his arguments off the ground and so not only in the presentation of our view we assume christianity is the necessary foundation that we try to show it we also try to point out to what the unbeliever is assuming and show that if what they're assuming about the world is true the rest of their argumentation wouldn't even make sense right you know it's like on par with someone who holds the position that we can't know anything for certain. We can't know truth. So his, right. so his epistemology, if you will, his theory of knowledge says that we couldn't really know anything because we're finite. We can never get outside of ourselves, blah, blah, blah. You know, the philosophical debates there. But if we can't know anything for certain, let's hypothetically grant the truth of that. If we can't know anything for certain, are you certain that we can't know anything for certain? <laughs>
0: right.
1: You see what I'm saying? So let's grant the assumption to show where it leads to. If we can't know anything at all, how do you know we can't know anything at all? So right. so when we're critiquing the unbeliever, we hypothetically assume the truth of the unbeliever's position to show that it actually leads to the destruction of knowledge. And then right. we grant the Christian worldview and show that it actually saves knowledge, saves science, saves philosophy, and saves every enterprise of human knowledge. Um, and so the argument for it, well, the way we argue can take, you know, a bunch of different directions. And so the presuppositional approach takes that tact, which makes it different than, say, the more classical uh, approach to defending the faith.
0: Right. Awesome, man. So the question is, how do you know? <laughs> <Just blame it. laughs> so, so I say that because in case people don't know, um, a lot of people have reduced uh, presuppositional apologetics, a powerful and biblical uh, apologetic method. To uh, just asking a few questions, how do you know? Mm-hmm. By what standard, no. you know? And, yeah, it's, and, you more, know, it's
1: so much more than that. But yeah. there is, and
0: and you know, um, uh, I uh, I know Jeff Durbin's really good at uh, using this in evangelism. You know, um, yeah. it's good for debate as well, like an actual uh, formal debate. You know, you see that you see that with James White, uh, Greg Bonson. Um, I, I mean, a, a lot of really a lot of Calvinistic uh, apologists are presuppositionalists. Uh, the majority of them are, at least, uh, and, and you know, at, at first glance, uh, it, it, it may seem intimidating because there's new there's new terms, you know. Sure. Um, but like you said earlier, in the very beginning of the interview, uh, even if an eighth grader were to ask these questions, you kind of just give it all in one, you know, two minute sound bite. You know what I mean? It's going to take a little bit of studying and all that. So right
1: but there are simple ways to do it the the beauty of presuppositional apologetics is that it can be done as greg bonson said by sophie the washwoman, the person who has no the person who has no education in philosophy can still Mm -hmm. take biblical principles and employ them in the area of unbelief and ask the simple question you know you believe in a world around us well or you believe that we could um you know we we take any item of human experience that anyone can talk about if we if we take it from the top shelf and talk about metaphysics and epistemology (laughs) and all this philosophy let's take it down a notch and let's let's talk about art Uh, what worldview makes sense out of the concept of beauty what worldview makes sense out of the concept of doing something like science or or whatever the case may be and so it it can be applied in more advanced ways but even a child could could use it if you apply it to areas that relate to what a child would want to talk about with some guidance in biblical principles and just asking the right questions. I think anybody could employ that, um, that methodology.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, even with like things like math, you know, things like yeah. math and, and yeah, simple things. You no, know, uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with that, man. It's, it's really good. Yeah. And, and again, um, your, your debate with, uh, is it negation? Neg-
1: negation of P.
0: Yeah. That guy. Yeah. Um, I recommend people, to listen, I recommend people to listen to that debate, uh, cause you do implement this method and, uh, and it's it's done very well and clear. That's what, that's one thing. I, again, I mean, I, I know I've been saying it over and over again, but I really appreciate how um, how quick you are to answer, but how easy it is, how easy it is to understand you. You know, mm. uh, sometimes you know people like to use certain terms, and it does like half the audience off. But because we're on the same side, I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, we. But but that's something I appreciate about about your debates and your discussions that you you do explain it in a way that's simple. And it kind of just proves the point, you know. Like um, even on a simple, on the spot level, you can definitely uh, implement this method. So,
1: well, that's helpful because every time I do a debate or something like that, I'm always asking myself, that make <laughs> sense? I hope people understood what I was trying to say." So yeah, I appreciate man.
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, one thing about that man is that at times I like to have my wife listen in to some of these discussions, and 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 her mind doesn't work. Um, it doesn't like work. No, 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 out. no, no. <laughs> I'm just hey, kidding. Hey you to giving me trouble here man <laughs> no no her, her, mind is, her mind doesn't work like uh, the same way how how, how for, for those of us who love theology and philosophy at sure. times you know her mind just tunes out of that like it's, it's hard to, it's hard for her to be interested in that you know so we're, last night we were watching a, 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 a debate between uh, eddie, eric murphy i was gonna say eddie murphy uh eric murphy <laughs> and, uh, and and tyler <laughs> yeah. yeah and and i was showing her some little highlights of tyler and um because and, 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 Tyler could Tyler could be very complicated He could be very like I mean man he can get really into it but when he, okay. when, he when he was trying to break it down to Eric m- my wife was actually you know catching on like she was actually following. you know okay. so that's one thing I actually really look for in debates you know because uh, I want my wife to I want I want her to actually benefit from what I'm listening to sure,
1: sure. And,
0: and 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 that's one thing that that, that that we both think is that you're very uh, easy to understand man um, okay yeah, so so
1: yeah. maybe maybe because it's I'm a teacher too. I guess now I get that natural teacher's cadence when I start going right. off on the. I actually debated Eric, Eric Murphy as well. That that's on I, my I, podcast.
0: I, I was listening to it. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And that was. It was good. It was good, man. Um, I, I don't know much about Eric Murphy. I, it, the, the only two videos I've seen so far was yours and uh, and Tyler's, but. Sure. Um, yeah. So yeah, I definitely appreciate that, man. So okay, again, one thing I definitely have to hit up, bro. I mean. Again, you hear it a lot. You, people compliment you of how respectful you are. Um, but I, I, one thing that I, I really wish every apologetic book had was a section on a whole chapter on Christian character. Right. Um, because even even our main passage that we use, uh, 1 Peter 3, 14 to 16. I'll just read it really fast here. Um, it says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. And then we just stop it there, right? Uh, but, but 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 if you keep reading though, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Right. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And and man, I mean like that that last half. I, I remember, uh, asked James White a question, um, he came to, um, California, um, I can't remember if it was Long Beach or what it was, but it was, it mm-hmm. was, it was a discussion he, he had. And I remember the question I asked him was, what do you do when you, when you feel like you're kind of getting prideful a little bit, you know, you, you feel, you're feeling pride and you feel like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm just slaughtering this guy here. Uh, but yet, you know, that that's not what is honoring to God, you know? And, and I think he thought I was talking about myself because he he kind of kind of rebuked me. He kind of rebuked me a little bit. man. <laughs> he's like, "There's no room for pride in God's hand." And I was like, "Oh <laughs> man!" You like that, yeah, man. I was
1: like, "Oh There's wow!" There's no but, room. Yeah, yeah exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and and, and uh, anyway, so because I I do think early on I saw this and um and I just remember reading that second half and I just felt so convicted. I'm like, I'm a horrible Christian right now, man. I was like, mm. I I, sh- I shouldn't do apologetics, you know, <laughs> and um. So, anyways, uh, there's more scripture, um, but I-, I wanted to ask you, man. Uh, what's the relation? Because obviously, like you're really good at it, though. Know? and I mean that not to, um, um, you know, give you a big head or whatever. But you know, I really do. I really do appreciate your 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 ministry, man, and, and how and how you conduct yourself in these uh, discussions. So, what would you say is the is the relation between the heart and mind when preparing yourself for apologetic ministry or evangelism?
1: Well, it depends what you mean by heart and mind. A lot of people think like the mind deals with the intellect and the heart deals with your emotions or something like that. And that's not necessarily the case biblically. Okay. Uh, the heart is often understood um, as the seat of the will, that intellectual capacity that goes into decision-making. It could also refer to the innermost parts of someone's being. Okay. So, I think I, so I often understand heart and mind to be one and the same. So okay. it's really when I'm preparing my heart to engage i'm really preparing my mind and part of that preparation is to include all of the content of scripture as it pertains to what the bible has to say about my conduct you you see what i'm saying so so you're not you can't do good apologetics while being a jerk because part about being gentle and respectful is part of the apologetical task you're defending the faith not merely with your arguments but you're also defending the faith by your conduct Some people have called this incarnational apologetics. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like defending the faith in the flesh, like how you actually act and and stuff like that. So um, I think they go hand in hand. They are inextricably inseparable. Uh, We have to go into uh, discussions with that mindset that we we are representing Christ. And so we should act in a manner that is consistent with the character of christ now you're not right. going to please everyone just as you just showered me with all these compliments of how nice i am yeah. in those same discussions that you have based that that description of me there are people in the comments say oh that guy was a jerk you know like i was so <laughs> arrogant and i'm thinking to myself, i'm like really i really tried to be super nice like come on man you know? um so you're, you're not going to please if you think i'm nice and a lot of people have said and i appreciate that and even my mm-hmm. opponents thank you you know um but if that's still People are going to say, well, you know, he's a jerk. He's arrogant, you know. Well, what are you what are you gonna do? The, right, best, exactly. you do, yeah, the best you can do, The best you could do is is represent Christ the best way you know how, and right. to try your best to be consistent with the character with which Jesus uh, showed when he was interacting with his interlocutors and, and leave the rest up to the Lord. But you have to be equipped with both the intellectual arguments and the, the conduct with which you are to engage those arguments and to put forth those arguments. Um, presuppositional apologists are often known especially online for being complete and utter jerks and Mm. and part of my desire to show respect to my opponent is because I have been disenfranchised by what many presuppositionalists online have done so my motivations are both scriptural and my desire to rectify how presuppositional apologists are often perceived um, in the public arena and so it's it's good to hear not to pat my own my own pride but it's good to hear when someone says hey that presuppositionalist was a little different than the one that i heard the other day right. if someone says that that's a victory one because if you like me a little more then perhaps you'll be more open to hearing me lay out my argument and there can be more, a cl- more clearer lines of communication right right you see you see what i'm saying so being nice to someone and respectful is both biblical i want to do it because i genuinely respect that person as an image bearer of god but also also strategically it's helpful Because it opens lines of communication and um, allows the opponent to not necessarily have all their guards up. I think when you have all your guards up, um, on the one hand, yes, you need to have your defenses up. But on the other hand, you can have your defenses so much up that you fail to actually listen to what the other person is saying. And so I think biblically, we need to act that way. And strategically, I think it's just better for communication when we respect our opponent.
0: Yeah. And, and also, too, man, um, like when, in Second Timothy uh, 2, 24, 26, uh, it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but, uh, but kind to everyone, able to teach, right. patiently endure evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of truth. Um, and I'll, just, I'll keep reading here. It says, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, you know, correcting his opponents with gentleness, right? God grants grant them repentance. So, uh, so earlier, yeah. And I do agree with you about the heart and the uh, the heart and the mind. You know, I, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, but, but it is it is kind of strange, though, at times. You know, uh, we we see this a lot with our Calvinist brothers. You know, who. Mm-hmm want to separate any kind of affection or, or, or demonstration of love, right? A frozen chosen. Yeah. Right? Frozen chosen. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but, but but not reality, man, we we have to be gentle. We have to be kind. Um, what, what helped me in the past, man, was, uh, what was, was understanding as a Calvinist, understanding that there's an elect out there. Like mm-hmm. I ha- I have, I have brothers and sisters out there that, 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 that are not yet, you know what I mean? And, okay. and, and God may use me to uh for him to save them, right so do you um i mean do you find that helpful man because i mean it, it, it could be very tiring when you debate all the time and talk to these atheists um some of them are very rude and and, and and i mean it can't just be because you love the intellectual exercise you know i'm sure i'm sure there's a desire to see someone like eric murphy to see him as a brother like mm-hmm. to just to just to hear him say guys i i I put my faith in, in, in the person of Christ, you know, that, that has to be that. I, I think, I think it's it's healthy for a Christian to have that kind of desire. Um, is that what you kind of have? Or I, I mean, like what, what helps you maintain this uh, zeal and hope when talking to atheists uh, online?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I definitely, my theology has a lot to do with that to know that there is an elect um, is helpful because uh, it's not an issue of me just, it's based upon my ability to convince someone. I do understand that I have I play a part, mm. but God plays that ultimate part to bringing those who yes. belong to Him unto Himself, and so right. that alleviates some of the stress uh, of like, oh my goodness, I you know I have to do this perfectly, or else it's all on me. You know, like right. um, someone's eternal destiny is not held in my hand. Right. You see what I'm saying? Um, I am the means. Right. Um, so I think understanding that God has a people allows me to take comfort in the fact that that aspect of conversion is not ultimately in my hands. And so that is very helpful. It's, 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 um, it takes away some of the stress of the entire, you know, the entire thing that I'm doing. Um, and yeah, it, it allows me to focus more on the person instead of merely winning the argument. Like I have to win the argument because I have to prove my point. Because <laughs> right, right. I, it, it's it's it. I, without having that worry of converting the person, I can focus more on that person where they are and not have to always worry about that intellectual side. But I can I can right. talk to them as a an image bearer of God and to really show affection, my concern for the person or, or some, things like that. So, yeah, and I think our theology informs that. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? If you if you have a false theology in regards to how that all works out. That might change your perspective on how you, um, you know, you evangelize and things like that. But let, 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 let's be straight: the Calvinist loves the uh, unbeliever because we're, we're called to have a love for the lost, and and the Arminian does. Right. You, you see, we we all are called to love uh, the the lost person, and this is something that's common. This unifies the different traditions within uh, within Christianity. How that all plays out is the difference. But we all should have that kind of affection for the person. And we should treat that person in a way that's consistent with what we profess. Sometimes we will be harsh with people and we'll talk down with people. But then in our own false sense of piety, we're doing that because we need to speak the truth. It's like, (laughs) get out of here, bro. You can speak the truth and be less of a jerk, right? A lot of us can come off really, really um, arrogant and prideful. Mm. um, And then we hide behind the language of love when, in fact, that's not really uh, where our heart is, our heart is more um, intellectually dominating the person. Now, granted, right. debating is fun. Mm. I'm not going to say it's not. I mm. enjoy a good debate. <laughs> I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Whether I'm involved in it or whether I'm I'm listening in on something. And so in my own sinful imperfection, I'm not always thinking of the unbeliever as kind of a lost soul that needs to hear the gospel. Sometimes I I too can get caught up, you know, in, in kind of the, just wanting to win the discussion. You'll never see it because mm-hmm. I have manners. Right. I don't, I don't. you know, I'm not going to be like, I don't try to come off in a really arrogant way, but in the depths of my heart, my heart's not always in the right position. Right, and right. so that's why conversations like this, you know, mm-hmm. reading scriptures and encouraging others to be consistent with what, what the Bible says reminds us of the importance of, hey, let's make sure we make that clear division. It's not just about arguing and winning debates. It's also about loving the people you're speaking with um, and understanding that other people are going to be hearing what you're saying and you want to, you want to represent Christ in a way that is glorifying to him and consistent with scripture.
0: Amen, bro. Yeah, definitely, man. Definitely. So yeah, man, I really, I'm really, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you would this with me, bro. Um, well, is there, is there anything else you want to, you want to share, uh, before we close out?
1: Uh, just to remind people, um, if they're interested in anything that I have to say and presuppositional apologetics or theology in general, they can subscribe to my YouTube channel. They can subscribe to my, um, my podcast and I'm also a traveling speaker. So if you want me to come to your church uh, you know, as long as my, you know, traveling expenses are covered and things like that um, I come and I can teach apologetics or uh, things like that. So people can reach me at revealed apologetics at gmail.com and uh, reach out to me that way. Cool. I didn't know that, man. That's, that's pretty neat. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Where, where, where are you? Where, what state are you in? Uh, California,
0: California. Yeah. I've, all, I've yeah. only
1: been to California once. I'd love
0: to yeah. go again. Yeah, man. Yeah. No, that that'll be pretty neat. I, I'm actually, uh, it, there's a possibility of, of us moving to Michigan. Um, sure. If people don't know that already, my friends are going to be like, what you can move to Michigan, but, uh, <laughs> it's kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of been, it's kind of been up in the air and sure. my closest friends know already, but, uh, but yeah, man, it's, uh, again, uh, I haven't seen your lectures yet. I know you have lectures on your YouTube, right? You you have lectures where you're um, at, at, at a church or something. There's like a screen in the back or something.
1: There might be. I don't remember. I don't remember. Okay, I have yeah. to. I have to look. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I've been. I've been meaning to 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 to, to uh, check those out, man. Because uh, I mean, if you're good at this, I'm sure you're good at a presentation or something. So <laughs> yeah. definitely learn. So, well, bro, uh, thank thank you, man. Uh, just stay, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the the, the record button so we could stop. Uh, but um, but thank you once again, man. I, I, I really do appreciate this. Uh, once again, go follow Eli on Build Apologetics YouTube and his podcast. Um, and I, I don't know if you want to advertise your Facebook too because you post oh, Facebook. on Facebook.
1: Yeah, I'm a big I'm, I'm big on Facebook. That's not what I <laughs> meant. I meant I meant I'm usually on Facebook a lot, yeah. so I put all, all my stuff on Facebook as well. Yeah, so yeah, awesome, bro. Well, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it too. Yeah.